It's 35 years ago last week, Valentine's Day, 1982, that I hit rock bottom. I had been in a series of incidents and accidents throughout my teen years, but in the last years of high school, I was running a much different game. You see, I had one foot in Christianity and the other in the party scene at my high school. February 13th, a Saturday, was turning out just like any other Saturday for me. I was out partying with my friends, but on this night, we were binging on vodka and cranberry juice, and at a hockey game, I uh, went ahead and accepted the passed-along joint that apparently had been dipped in PCP. And so over the course of that evening and then into the early morning hours, I began to have reactions to it that I did not expect, and about 3 a.m. I started throwing up. Then I couldn't stop, even though there was nothing left to throw up. Around 4 a.m., 5 a.m., I tried to climb into the shower to warm up because I was so cold. Ironically, too, that morning I was remembering that I was supposed to go to church with a girlfriend who'd invited me to their Valentine's Day Bring Your Sweetheart to Jesus Week or whatever it was. And in her case, uh, I, she managed to get me there, but I had to leave Sunday school to go throw up again. We left before the service happened and then obviously skipped out on the planned brunch as we weren't going to be able to keep that down either. So I went home and crashed. I can only thank the Lord that my parents weren't home that weekend. I was being supervised by my older sister, Lisa. You see, after years of flirting with the fires of hell, thinking it would never, ever harm me, I was finally getting burnt. You know, I was finally experiencing a pain that some people refer to as hitting rock bottom you realize that all of the things I've been doing have stopped working and actually things that I thought wouldn't harm me are actually starting to harm me. Interestingly, it doesn't have to be drugs and alcohol. For some people, it's um, I'm trying really hard to make my business work and it's costing me my marriage and my family because I have so much to do and I'm ignoring everybody else in my life. For some people, it's just a string of really bad choices self-dependence that makes you realize that you're kind of sort of ruining your own life. These are, these are tough moments, and it also happens to be the moment that Jonah is experiencing in our study of Jonah. We focus on Jonah 1.17 today to conclude chapter 1, and in the process, what we'd like to do is show some similarities between Jonah's moment of truth, his rock-bottom experience, and that of the prodigal son in Jesus' parable of Luke chapter 15. See, God gives us free will, and we make sinful choices, and then he will allow those natural consequences, the, the things that would result from those bad choices, to take their toll on us. You see, he, he superintends a process, and I'm grateful that in my life, on most occasions, he has prevented me from experiencing the full depth of that pain. I mean, the consequences could have been a lot worse. I didn't die on Valentine's Day 1982. I didn't overdose or do anything stupid other than just get really sick 
so sick that I determined I was never going to drink anymore. And I certainly was never going to fart around with using any kind of drugs anymore. And I didn't. But for some, it takes that moment for reasons that only God knows, potentially related to the pride of our heart. He will superintend a bottoming out. It is that moment where you can't go any lower and you're forced to finally look up to him. Before I, though, today can make a parallel between Jonah and the lost son, the younger brother of the prodigal son story, we have to address a supposition that we here at Prism Church make regarding Jonah, namely that he was a real person who did actually live inside a fish for three days. I know for some this is a tough, tough swallow, no pun intended. But in the case of Jonah 117, it, it brings us to maybe a critical crisis moment in terms of what we believe or what we think. And I see in Jonah 117 the dual purposes of God's plan and the exercise or demonstration of his power. It says in Jonah 117, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So you see the superintending of the sovereign God over life's circumstances. You also see the power and, and force of God that enables him to do something like keep somebody alive in a fish. Now, the book of Jonah, some have characterized it as allegory. And I would say that those who ventured into intellectual and historical scholastic exercises to just discover whether or not Jonah was an actual person uh, or if it was just a story, um, that's a good thing. If that's your quest, have fun. Be careful on your intellectual exercise. But if you're at this place, and some are, where you feel like you must make the book of Jonah an allegory because you can't believe in anything supernatural that would defy or contradict your seemingly enlightened and naturalistic presupposition, this, my friend, is that moment of truth. This is the place where you're going to have to recognize that there are some intellectual consequences to our choices. You end up with a theological problem that's pretty sizable you become locked into a place where you might be saying, I believe in an all-powerful God who can't do certain things. Or you then say, I believe in a God, but that God is not all-powerful, which opens up an entire separate can of worms Conceivably, you say you believe in a God who could do anything but chooses not to enter into human affairs so as not to disrupt the space-time continuum or some other thing that you're concerned about. A little back to the future reference there for you who are paying attention. But you have to then ask the question, if God doesn't disrupt human events or enter into human events, how did I arrive at this certain knowledge about God? if he didn't break into human affairs to reveal it to us in the first place. Also, 
and probably most striking if you claim to be a Christian is you're going to run headfirst into a rather gargantuan contradiction, which is that Jesus purported to be God, the one through whom all things were made. And at the heart of Christianity is that an eternal God stepped into our time so as to save us from an eternal judgment. This is the, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus didn't just sit out there at a distance and go, they sure are going to hell. He actually got involved in the process and said, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to break in to time. Alas, I, the elders at PRISM, we've concluded that if Jesus Christ attested to the reality of Jonah's life, as he did, and compared his upcoming death and resurrection to Jonah's experience, and that the Old Testament book of 2 Kings speaks clearly of the prophet Jonah, that we are compelled to concur. Let me tell you what really makes me excited about Jonah 1.17, and really what I want to talk about today. I am fascinated by how literally rock bottom Jonah has hit in his rebellion to the Lord. He's so rock bottom that he's below sea level. <laughs> Think about that. I have never had a rock bottom moment where I wasn't at least pressed to the ground. He's, he's beneath the ground. He is in the rocks at the bottom of the ocean. And I compare his experience to mine, perhaps yours, but most certainly to the fictional because it was a, a parable. Jesus was telling a story of the younger brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. If you're not familiar with the story, which was read in part this morning during our scripture reading, it depicts the tale of a rebellious younger brother of a wealthy landowner who demanded his inheritance before the father had even had a chance to die. In spite of how offensive and hurtful that might be, the dad permitted him to get his money and he was freed to walk away. Now he eventually blew all of this money in wild living. He went to Vegas, the Vegas of his day, and it was gone, as were all of his friends and no one to help him. He'd eventually humbly return to his father and receive forgiveness, but it wasn't until he had this moment of clarity a rock-bottom moment. So the purpose of the prodigal son narrative was to depict the contrasting and often contentious relationship between those who would come to the Father by grace and say, I don't deserve this, and those who would say, I've been so holy, righteous, and wonderful that I actually deserve all of the good things that I have been given. And this is the picture of the son, the younger brother, and the, the older brother, but for many of us, this struggle continues. We lose sight of the fact that we don't deserve anything. Even the things that come as a result, maybe naturally, of good choices we made are miracles. Do you ever sit back and wonder, how did I do that right for the first time ever? You know, Do you ever look back at your life as I do and go, wow, this has worked out a lot better than I really deserved it to work out? This is what we are called to. Every human being is called to recognize that they are made acceptable to God and stand freely in God's presence and receive blessing from him only because of his grace. 
However, for some of us, we have to hit rock bottom before we'll look up to see what's true. Some of us have the good fortune of having a sensitive spirit or a heightened conscience that would prevent us from having to be hard-headed and hard-hearted. You don't have to go down to the depths. You can ask for the miracle of God's renewing grace and go, I'm ready to listen. I don't want to end up there. And I can tell you after my last experience of God showing me the brokenness of my soul, it has made me more attuned to when I'm getting ready to turn and run because I really don't want to have to experience that again. But I can tell you this much. In the experience of getting this clarity There are two aspects of this moment of rock-bottomness that actually become crystallized and clarified for us in our understanding. And that's what I want to look at today. And the first is this. When you're at that rock-bottom moment, whatever that looks like in your life, our worldly fun must reveal its futility. This is what happens when you you recognize that whatever I've been pursuing to make something in me feel good, look good, isn't working. You realize that it's been an exercise in futility. As we read in the text, Luke 15, verses 13 through 16, it says, not many days later, this is after he gets his inheritance, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. This story would have been particularly uh, poignant to Jews who didn't eat pigs and matter of fact found them to be detestable And so the idea that at the bottom of this guy's life, he had to go actually work with and feed pigs uh, would have been like, wow, this guy really has hit the skids. But I see in this section of the prodigal son narrative uh, more evidence of God's superintending of all things. Not only did he allow the prodigal to go away, but as fate would have it, a famine hit the land just about the time he ran out of money. And, and I can say from personal experience that in those times of my life where I've just been ignoring the Lord, and I've not done it in such a way that everybody would know I was in full-blown rebellion on the road to Vegas, uh, nothing like that, but where I'm mentally going, you know, I'm just tired of dealing with this. In those moments, God would tend to allow circumstances to change that would cause me to do the, the same thing as when I would hit rock bottom. I would go, okay, 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 got it, got it. And these are intentional. You see, our worldly fun at the bottom reveals to us that it just doesn't have the stuff it takes to satisfy our souls. It is a futile pursuit. Our stuff, our status, our senseless succumbing to the sensual things And that's an impressive tongue twister, if I do say so myself. These things can't fill our soul. Our hearts were made for fellowship with Almighty God. We long for an experience with the transcendent Lord who created us. And put simply, 
Our ventures into worldly pursuits are merely attempts to shortcut the journey to know God. It's like being promised a great banquet of healthy, wonderful food and stopping on the way to load up on candy. The nutrition-less doses of cotton candy actually make your stomach sick and prevent you from really hungering for and longing for the banquet table of genuine joy that is found in knowing God. And while the struggles may change, I want you to know this is going to be a lifelong battle. At age 51, it's no easier than it was at 41, 31, or 21. Now, the, the things that I have to resist are different. Pastors aren't what you'd call the wild children. We are not what you would worry, and probably rightfully so, that uh, we're not going off on a crazy bender. But I can assure you um, that while I'm not a party animal anymore, there are other things that try to occupy my soul instead of Almighty God. There have been some terrific books that have been written and are continuing to be written about the crisis in American Christianity, and it is rising to that level, of the evangelical church's obsession with pastors being famous and pastors then pursuing that as a means to satisfying their souls. It's what's produced many, many of the largest churches in America. You say, well, that seems like an awful cynical, uh, you know, take on things, but I can tell you from my own experience that that is most certainly the temptation that faces a person at my age. We're reading a book together, uh, our elders, called The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb, and in it, Eugene Peterson, who is considered a, a pastor to pastors, longtime pastors with lots of great counsel for those of us who do this ministerial thing vocationally, he says this, classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence. Through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, through the ecstasy of recreational sex, and through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. It's probably because they get so much ego benefit from the crowds. I don't know what your struggle is. It probably isn't a church crowd, which may sound like a silly pursuit to you. But the rebel in Jesus' parable is designed to help all of us see the nature of God's mercy, its magnificence, its breadth, its depth. Where our rebellion is great, it only magnifies the grace bestowed upon the undeserving sinner the more broken and rebellious somebody is, or at least the recognition of the potential for making all sorts of silly missteps with our lives, the more you recognize the heart you have, which is desperately in rebellion to God, the more amazing the grace and forgiveness offered to us actually is. The Apostle Paul says this about our sin in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Now, he's speaking of Adam's sin and Christ's act of redeeming mankind on the cross. 
For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me help explain this if you feel like that's a lot of religious gobbledygook piled together. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God and brought death to everyone. However, through Jesus' one act of righteousness, his willingness to be crucified, to pay for the sins of the world, all who look to him have life. Joy is the byproduct of receiving the free gift of God's love. And just as there was great punishment associated with the one trespass, there is amazing phenomenal blessing associated with this one act of righteousness. And it is through that that we experience the joy. Joy is the byproduct of receiving the free gift of God's love. The joyless, ungrateful person, whether they lay claim to know God or not, is someone who doesn't recognize what God has provided for them. Or perhaps more ably said, They don't recognize that what they have received, they don't deserve. It is a gift from God. You see, our ingratitude is an indication that we've lost perspective on reality. Anyone who has children knows this experience. As a parent, you want to love your kids, and so when they're little, you just shower them with toys and stuff and hugs and everything. And then somewhere around their teen years, they start to think they deserve all of this kindness you've been extending to them for a dozen years. And you have to have a moment of teaching where you say, oh, no, I do love you and was glad to provide all of this, but this is because of my mercy and my kindness and love. You don't deserve any of this. Your life is because we made you. And your meals have, provided, have been provided by our sense of responsibility to feed you. And this is sort of what happens with us and God. We have this moment, these moments where we go, you know, I'm demanding from God stuff. I'm mad at him because I'm not getting what I want when I want it. Which is effectively the prodigal son's experience. Discontent and thrown about. He says, give me my money. Give me my inheritance. I don't like you I don't want to, being with you isn't my greatest joy, dad. I want your stuff. And then he blows it all and realizes that, man, what a futile enterprise that was. What my soul's really longing for is, is fellowship with my father. You and I are called to recognize that while we think at first it's worldly fun, in the end it becomes an exercise of futility. And then also at that rock-bottom moment, we see that our guilty heart must return to the Father. In the text here in Luke 15, verses 17 through 20, is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because it is the story of my life. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, this is something that I think when I have the resources to do it, I'm going to put on a bronze plaque in my home. 
Because I can't tell you how many times I went, you know what, I've been making a mess of my life and I'm just finally going to stop doing this. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Rock bottom can be a time of incredible clarity. You realize who your friends are. The prodigal son's friends left as quick as the money ran out. So many people can make that same statement that when I went through a tough time, I found out who my friends were. Rock bottom and enable you to see what's important to you. In the prodigal son's case, it was family and friends. Ultimately, it's a picture of what we see most at that moment is that we need God more than we imagine that our souls are hungry for more than we've been feeding them. So we get to discover or for some rediscover the great affection that God has for us. An affection that is beyond description and is extraordinarily difficult to comprehend if you had bad experiences as a kid, as a kid with parents, as most would say they have. And most of us who are parents are frightened to know what moments we're going to have of apologizing in the future as our kids come to understand just how insufficient we were at that capacity too. What I know is that when we come to the conclusion that we are guilty, we have to go before the Father. And people resist this term guilty. I know children sometimes will say things like, you're making me feel guilty. And, and if you're a good parent, what you say to that is, it's because you are guilty. Um, and, and that would hope to settle it. Often we feel guilty because we are, and, and that is a good thing. Uh, to be guilty and not feel guilty is a psychological disorder that is common among serial killers. So uh, embrace, the, embrace the health that exists in you that you feel badly when you do something that deserves feeling badly about. The good news from Scripture is that forgiveness awaits. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him and uh, we make him a liar. Wow, <laughs> that's brutal. If you say you haven't sinned, you're calling God a liar, and His Word is not in us. I want you not to worry, though, because if you're a child of the Living God through Christ, your heaven, your heavenly Father is anxious to hear your confession. You confess your sins; He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The lost father was already looking for, scanning the horizon, hoping for his son's arrival back home. The prodigal's father was not like, yeah, he gets back here, he gets back here. To heck with him. He would stand and look for. See, the scriptures 
conclude this story in Luke 15, 20 through 24. It says, while he, the, the, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. See, the father wouldn't even let him finish his pre-prepared confession. He's like, stop that. I'm so glad you've returned. Before the prodigal could blurt out the entire rehearsed confession, his father had forgiven him, welcomed back into the family, treated him with honor, gave orders to celebrate his return. A son he thought was as good as dead. You see, there was joy in the father's heart as the son returned. Not a look of scorn, not a look of, well, I'm glad you came to your senses, you little booger. There wasn't disdain or shame. It was, I'm so thankful that you came to your senses. I'm so grateful that you are coming and returning. There was joy in the father's heart as his son made his way back home. And that's why God is so willing to let us descend to rock bottom. Because he so enjoys our return. He genuinely longs for us to return. He created us for his pleasure. Get your head around that. He actually enjoys you. We now see this turning back in Jonah. As in verse 17 of Jonah 1, he's literally hitting rock bottom. And the road back is going to be a bumpy one for Jonah. He's not through learning lessons as we aren't. But what we can recognize in the middle of all this is that your father is anxious. And I mean in a good way. He's, he's excited that there's movement in your soul. And if you said for a long time, my heart is, just feels like it's not moving towards the Lord Understand, his spirit will begin to work in you and perhaps is already working in you. And as you turn and move back towards God, his disposition is one of great joy. My, my kids are both in college and they both live in dorms. Even though it's in the Los Angeles area, we don't see them anywhere near the frequency we did when they lived at home. So we are effectively in this new empty nest stage. And for you parents who have little kids and they're exhausting the snot out of you, I know it looks like that would be like the Holy Grail. You know, you're thinking to yourself, wow, that's going to be amazing. I just want you to know it's been harder than I ever imagined it would be. Our house is really quiet. And I love the busy house. I loved my kids bringing their friends over. I loved music as long as it wasn't too profane, blowing from the speakers in my son's room. I mean, I, 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 mean, I just love the activity of it all. I love the, the, the excitement of being there in the midst of my kids. And so I miss it. And so when my daughter texts me and says, come down to Irvine for coffee or my son 
texts me from up the hill in Pasadena and says, I slept through lunch. Now, you heard that right. He didn't just sleep through breakfast. He's a college kid. He was up till four in the morning. He literally slept through two meals on the plan. And then calls me and says, can you come and get a hamburger with me? And as I've said before, he knows that that means he has to sit with me for at least a half hour. I'm not bringing burgers and dropping them off. It means I get time with him. That's the price of the burger. I'm always reluctant to use my relationship with my kids as some kind of analogous picture of God because they give me grief afterwards. Oh, yeah, you're like God in this relationship. (laughs) And that's just what I need is more grief from my kids. Like I wasn't naturally getting a ton of that to start with. But I do want you to see that with a, a vigor greater than my love for coffee with my daughter or hamburgers with my son is God's desire to fellowship with you and for you to turn and return to him. See, and at the moment you're at your worst, you might be thinking, he's going to be angry. I'm at rock bottom and I have harmed who knows how many people and harmed myself how much I don't know. And so now I have to look up and you may wonder, is he going to smack you around? because you had a dad who smacked you around or a mom who smacked you around. You may think, all right, I'm going to finally say I'm wrong here as somebody is going to beat up on me emotionally. You know, is this what I'm headed for? And I want to give you courage by the gospel of Jesus Christ that when you look up as God's child, he's really happy to see you. He really longs for your return. As we go to communion today, I I would pray that you'd have this thought in your mind, that you'd know that this symbolic experience of coming to take the bread and the wine as a picture, a symbol of Jesus' sacrifice for us is also a metaphor for us entering into fellowship again. Because when the original Lord's Supper took place, it was Jesus reclining at the table with his buddies And he even said, I'm so glad I get to eat this meal with you. He's calling you to that type of relationship again. So let us pray. Father, today we're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that you're patient with us. We're also thankful that at this moment where we are coming to our senses, that when we turn and look up to you, you're not angry, but like the father and the prodigal son narrative you are filled with compassion and you run to us that's just mind-blowing for us god some of us have a really difficult time conceiving of such a thing because of traumatic experiences we've had in life but i pray that you'd break through that because until we really believe that it makes it that much harder for us to turn It makes us that much harder for us to return to you when we've come to our senses. Dear Father, bless your children this morning with that comprehension so that they might love you. We pray this in Jesus.